It's always an honor to be with you. This is, uh, we just celebrated our one-year anniversary here at Fellowship of the Rockies, my wife and family and I. And it's been amazing to look over the last year at to what God's doing, not only in the life of our church, but even the influence he's giving us abroad globally. And even being in places like Zimbabwe and Africa and being in Costa Rica and in Haiti, it's amazing to see that God's doing a very unique work. But one of the things that I see on an ongoing basis, regardless of being overseas or being here in churches across America, there's something that you witness, whether you're in the church or the workplace or in people's home, that it's pretty easy to spot sometimes. And more than likely, each one of us in this room, if we've not spotted it, we've encountered it ourselves. And it's identifying people that are dealing with the spirit of hopelessness, dealing with the reality that they're asking the question, is this really as good as it's ever going to get? Is this really what life was meant to be? Is this what it's really cracked up to be, that this is as good as it's ever going to get? And we see hopelessness and we deal with hopelessness, but what is different about the person that has been married for 30 years? And that couple continues to walk through the realities of trials and difficulties versus the couple after 30 years filing for irreconcilable differences. What's different? Now, what is it like for that high school student that gets cut from the basketball team and goes home and begins to sob in his room and become an individual that you and I know after six NBA championships and MVP titles called Michael Jordan? What does it look like for that child at the age of four that's still unable to speak and teachers are telling the parents of this child that your child will really never add up to much in the individual that you and I know to be Albert Einstein? What does it look like for a man that approaches 27 different publishers after he writes his first book, asking for them to consider publishing this book after 27 people telling him that his writing will never add up to much? We now know today a man by the name of Dr. Seuss. What about the guy that gets fired from the newspaper because on his pink slip it writes, you've never had an original idea and you bring no creativity to this organization? And you and I know him by the man named Walt Disney. What's different about the man and the woman that allows the circumstances and the difficulties to place them into a place of bondage versus an individual saying, I believe there's a brighter and a greater future for me, and they begin to move forward? What does that look like? What are those differences? And this morning, I want you, if you would, to look with me into the book of Hebrews. Because it's interesting that an author at this point in time, as he's writing to this group of people, we understand that things didn't look all that different then. That he writes here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 19. He deals with a crux that we see throughout all of Scripture, a hope that rests in the life of Jesus Christ, page after page after page. In Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 19, it says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. If you're using a new living translation this morning, I like, as it, bring, I like it as it brings this to life as well, saying this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. And what the author is doing at this point is he's creating this metaphor that if we understand the relationship between an anchor and a boat, we understand the relationship between hope and our soul. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't grow up around sailing, didn't grow up around boating, didn't really have much of an understanding of it at all as a young adult, and even today, maybe been out on maybe two or three boats in my lifetime. 
So what I had to do is I had to go out and find a resource that would give me a little bit better knowledge of what it meant to be on the water, sailing, boating. And I had to get something that was pretty much my speed. And so as I went out and I found me a book called Sailing for Dummies, which really fit me well, I began to read through this book and I began to realize that there are some amazing truths in the life of this. There's a truth that I found on my way to chapter 9 that after you read about you know, what you wear, proper attire on the water, proper speech on the water, and how you talk to other sailors and other boaters, and what you wear, I thought that was kind of funny. And, and then you start looking at all the names of the boat from the jib to the back and the front that have names too that I don't remember. And, and as I'm reading through this, I get to chapter 9 and I realize there is an entire chapter dedicated to anchors, which I found kind of interesting. An entire chapter dedicated to anchors. And as I began to read through that and I began to look at this, I came across a statement that I'm telling you this morning, if you don't get anything else today, get this. You're going to want to put it on your refrigerator. You're going to want to put it on your bathroom mirror. You're going to want to see this over and over and over. And it's point number one. Anchors sink. They do not float. Anchors sink. They do not float. Pastor Corey, what in the world do you mean by that? Let me just tell you, there was a movie back in the late 80s, maybe early 90s with with Sandra Bullock called Hope Floats. Let me tell you, that's a lie. (laughs) It sinks like a rock. See, why is that important is that we understand that anchors, barring clear water or shallow water, an anchor goes to a place we cannot see. It goes to a place that we don't fully comprehend what's at the bottom and what it's holding to. It goes to a place that as a sailor or as a boater is throwing it into a place with the expectation it will do its job to hold firm to whatever it's anchoring to. And as the author begins to flesh this out, that we have an anchor of the soul that's both sure and steadfast, that he even paints a deeper picture in Hebrews chapter 11 in verse 1 by saying, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things what? Not seen. It's an utter conviction. It's part of the the root in our soul that takes hold of something that communicates that regardless of circumstance and regardless of the issues I look at day after day after day, I will hold fast to the reality that this anchor that I cannot see will remain true. It will be faithful. It's real. Paul takes it even a step further when he writes to the Romans. Here in Romans chapter 8, verse 24, he says, For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what, is already, what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. This hope that we have been saved And we don't see all the details and all the fine fingerprints around it, but there is a perseverance that wells up in us that we can eagerly wait with anticipation on the promises of our God. There's a reality that you and I can see God in in the living, in the truth, in 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 the realities of our life that we know He is faithful day in and day out. It's a matter of whether or not we believe it. Your senses can't grasp it. You may not be able to see where that anchor goes. You may not be able to touch it. You may not be able to see it. You may not be able to smell it. You may not be able to taste it. But there's a reality that the authors of God's word continue to paint for us that there is an anchor both sure and steadfast because it enters within the veil. But 
as you look at that and you ask yourself the questions, what exactly does that mean? Well, what does it look like to be anchored to something? What is, what is that reality? And it's in point number two that anchors hold to biblical promises. Page after page of God's word, we see promises revealed over and over and over to us. That we see in Matthew chapter 5 verse 8. We see him revealing to us in that point that blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. We see it in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. But those who trust in the Lord will find strength. They will mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. We see it in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. For those that trust in the Lord with all their heart and lean not in their own understanding, but in all of their ways acknowledge him and he will direct your path. We see it again in Matthew chapter 5, or chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There's promise after promise after promise that we have the opportunity to hold to knowing that in the moment that Christ died, there were disciples that were witnessing this moment. They were seeing with their eyes what, were taking, what was taking place with the Messiah, with the Savior, the individual they called Jesus. And in this moment of crucifixion, they were seeing it in a spirit of hopelessness. Because, see, they saw Jesus coming to deliver them from all the pain and all the guilt and the hurt and the sorrow and the death. And that he would bring, he'd take away the oppression of the governments that had reigned over them. And that he would be this Messiah of great proportion. And they saw him being crucified. With hands being driven, or nails being driven through his hands and his feet. They realized in this moment that they were living in a verdict of the past. Not understanding that in three days later there would be a new verdict. And it'd be a verdict that does away with the verdict of the past. They were forgetting that he would say, I will rise again, and I will come back for my bride, and I will be alive. And in the realities of the promises that Jesus was speaking into his disciples, the circumstances of that moment still produced a spirit of hopelessness in their life. We see it even before the stone is rolled away. The realities of this loss and the reality of this grief and the realities of the guilt of, and the shame that even Peter himself was dealing with. Why? Because they weren't anchoring to the promises that Jesus had already spoken to them. What does that look like for us to be certain of things that don't change? What does it look like for us to have certain future that we know is filled with God's promises? there's a sanctuary in which our anchor holds, and it holds firm. Pastor Corey, how in the world can we really, how do we live with certainty in a world that's constantly changing around us? I mean, Corey, things are always changing. We deal with it day in and day out of change in this area and change in that area. How can we have certainty? I'll never forget growing up. We had one of the, this maroon wooden paneled van that we drove around in. And I'm the youngest of four, so there were six of us. And, and I remember my dad, man, he, he loved the van. And for one particular reason, the van had an eight-track player in the dash. And if you were to go to our garage, you would see this, like, this big square, and it was a library of all these eight-tracks that my dad had accumulated from like the Oak Ridge Boys to Steve and Annie Chapman. And you could just go through and see all these eight-tracks. And he just, he loved his eight tracks. And I'll never forget when the first cassettes started coming out. Son, don't spend your money on those cassette things. Eight tracks are where it's at. 
Eight tracks are going to be around for a long time. Don't buy, your, don't buy those cassettes, son, to the point where you can't find an eight-track player anywhere. And tapes are now getting replaced with CDs. And some of you are like, eight tracks? What? Hey, Mom, what, what's an eight track? I don't, I don't have a clue what that is. And CDs are getting replaced with MP3 players. And technology around us is constantly changing. Uh, my friend and I, Chris Seifert, we grew up together. We were best friends. And Chris, I'll never forget, our families kind of had this little, uh, probably just Chris and I kind of had this competition because, see, his family bought a beta player and we bought a VHS player. Yeah, some of you did. Uh-huh. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And at Blockbuster, which was kind of the only place you could buy movies at that point in time, Blockbuster had a beta section and they had a VHS section. And over time, you begin to see this VHS section just begin to creep over and take over where all the beta tapes were until there were like six on the shelf. Because things were always changing. When we worked out as a kid, I'll never forget when I was in junior high and you'd go to gym class, you would work out and you'd do your sit-ups and your pull-ups and your push-ups and all these different things. And I've realized over time that now they tell you, you know, you don't do sit-ups anymore, you do crunches. And and you don't work out that way because it's bad for your body, you work out this way. And I got to the point where if there's that much change in the way you work out, why try? (laughs) My wife says I need to try a little more. (laughs) But things are always changing. Corey, how do we have a certainty in God's word? How do we have a certainty to the promises when we live in a world that's constantly changing? The author, author here in Hebrews addresses that. He says in chapter 6, verse 13 through 18, that for when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could not swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, Abraham, and I will surely multiply you. And so having been patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. In verse 16, he says, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as a confirmation is an end to every dispute. What's the author saying? In the Hebrew culture, what would happen is if a promise is made, in order to understand what he's saying to end every dispute, that when there's a promise made and then there's an oath confirmed over that promise, In the Hebrew culture, the one making the oath on top of that promise was communicating that if I break the oath, if I break the promise, my life is the guarantee behind that. That an individual's life could be taken because of of the broken promise that was there. And what the author here is saying is that there is a promise and an oath being made by our God. And he's saying that because he can make it, uh, that he can make that oath on no one greater, he makes it on himself. Saying in verse 17 that in the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise. Who's that? It's us. The heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, What are the two unchangeable things? The promise and the oath. Those two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would what? Have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is set before us. That you would have strong encouragement. What else in life gives you strong encouragement? 
that it's to take hold of this hope that is set before us. That these two unmutable, these two unchangeable things that give us strong encouragement. Why? Because it's giving us encouragement into the promise that the heirs that you and I as from the king have in the future that we know. That when he says he will one day return for his bride. What does it tell us in Timothy that we'll be caught up in the twinkling of an eye in the air. And the dead in Christ shall rise. And there's a promise for you and I that we understand that there is a verdict in the future that will change the verdict of our past. And he's faithful. Titus chapter 1 verse 2 says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. In the hope of of eternal life that you and I have. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And now you see the character of a God that's pursuing His creation. And His desire and His heart for you and I is to know Him with intimacy and to know the love and the grace and the mercy that He has lavishly poured out. By those two unchangeable things, we have a sure and steadfast foundation for the hope in the fulfillment of His promises. Where? In the veil. In the veil. See, one of the things I also learned from the book, a lot of wisdom here, there are some principles in here that as I'm studying through chapters 1 through 9, as I get to 9, I realize that there are things that are really important to know about sailing. That Number one, if you throw the anchor over, make sure it's tied to the boat. <laughs> Small details. Who knew? It also points to the fact that if you throw the anchor over, make sure it's not tied around a foot or an arm. This title is accurate, Okay. But one of the other things that I learned in this book is that there are good places to anchor and there are bad places to anchor. But it also talks about the fact that there are good anchors and there are bad anchors. That number three this morning, I want you to understand that there are good anchors and there are bad anchors. And understanding what a good anchor looks like or a bad anchor looks like, you don't have to go any further than late night television. other night I'm sitting at my TV and got my remote in hand and I'm just clicking through trying to find something to watch. And all of a sudden I come across toddlers and tiaras. You've seen it. And here we have mothers and fathers that are parading out their four and five year old daughters onto stages of beauty pageants and they're dressing them up and dolling them up and you have women in the background that are screaming at them, teaching them how to wave their hands and trying to get them to smile and trying to do all these routines. Why? To seek the praises of other men and you actually see women trying to live their past through their daughters. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, change, tink, 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 tink. Here comes honey boo-boo. Oh, no, get it out, get it out. Uh, wash my head, wash my eyes, get it off, get it off. And you're just click, 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 click. Oh, good, hoarders. <laughs> really? Fascinating. Who knew that there are people that have every nook and every cranny of their home piled up from top to bottom with things that they have purchased long ago but have no ability to get rid of something that they've called their own. And there's actually interventions taking place to help people begin to get rid of something that they've kept for the last 25 years and they're shedding tears over the reality that the book that they promised they would read 17 years ago, someone threw in the trash. Click, 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 click. 
bridezillas. Oh, well, awesome. Now I get to watch women that are really unhappy about their wedding day because they're not getting the $10,000 wedding dress and the $14,000 wedding cake, and they're stomping around saying, uh, 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 come on, boyfriend, you're going to pay up because I'm going to have the wedding I want to have, and you're going to do it the way I want to do it, and don't you try to tell me otherwise. Click, 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 click. Pet psychic. Oh, even better. Here we've got a woman with a turtle that says, my little boo-boo for some reason ain't coming out of his shell as much as he used to, and he seems depressed for some reason, and I don't know what to do. And Give me one second. Boo-boo needs a friend. He's lonely. So they fast forward, and you see the lady come back after three or four days, and she said, I got him a fish, and I came back a couple hours later, and he ate it. (laughs) Give me a second. He was just hungry. Really? Who knew? And we anchor to things and we put passion and enthusiasm behind things that we come back later saying, what were we thinking? See, Chris Seifert and I, when I was younger, we were about 13 or 12 And one afternoon, we decided to go fishing because we had a big pond in the back of our house, and we had a little aluminum flat-bottom boat. And Chris and I would get our fishing poles and get our bait, and we'd get in the boat and paddle out to an area that we knew the fishing was best because the water was a little deeper, and it was kind of away from some of the deeper, uh, the the thickness of the cattails on the banks. And we would paddle out there, and we'd put our poles in the water. Well, our line. I threw my pole in a couple of times. But we put our line in the water, and all of a sudden we realized after two or three minutes, the wind would start blowing, and it would push us all the way to the other side of where we didn't want to be. So we'd put them back in the boat. We'd get our paddles, and we'd get back out to the same place we want to be and put our lines in the water and blow us right back over to the other side. And after three or four times of doing this, we realized, you know what? This is exhausting. We, we need something to keep us in place. And I remembered that my brother had just had his 16th birthday party, and my parents got him a new weight set. So Chris and I, and our genius, decided to go and get a 25-pound weight, which took the both of us to get it to the boat. And, and we got the 25-pound weight in the boat, and we realized we need a rope. We couldn't find any rope. So I said, well, my dad's 100-foot extension cord should serve its purpose. And so we used the extension cord around the weight, and we did remember to tie it to the boat before we threw it over. But we paddled out, and we throw it over, and we put our lines in the water, and before we realize, that wind starts picking up again. And it starts dragging us to the other side of the pond again. And now we just get frustrated. But see, what we didn't realize is that we had a bad anchor. See, the anchor that we threw overboard had no holding power. There was nothing about it that allowed it to grab hold into a place we could not see. Because the water was dirty and the water was deep, when we threw it over, all it did was just simply drag across the bottom because it wasn't holding to anything. To promises that you and I hear in God's word that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That he will supply all of my needs according to his riches and his glory. And that if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And there are anchors in God's word that we know that when we throw down in the midst of our life, it will hold firm in the midst of chaos, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of sorrow, knowing that our God is faithful day in and day out. He is a God that promises that he will be the same yesterday, today, and forever. And when we look at the realities of a good anchor or a bad anchor, we also see that the author of Hebrews fleshes this out even deeper by saying that an anchor also translates as a guarantee. He says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 22, so much the more, also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. 
And now we see a theme in the book of Hebrews that's being fleshed out for us. See, Hebrews is all about pointing to the good and contrasting it with the better. And we see a constant contrast back and forth of an old covenant and a new covenant. Something good and now something better. And what he's saying here is there is a guarantee to this covenant. There is a guarantee to the relationship we now have in Christ as the risen Lord, as the risen Savior who has entered into the veil on my behalf and your behalf. A guarantee. See, most of us in this room know what this guarantee kind of looks like. I'm going to guess many of you operate like this regularly. How many of you use direct deposit? About half. Here's the thing. What happens in my home is that when I know I get paid on a Monday, it's going to be directly deposited to my account. And you know what I do? I go use my debit card and spend money. Why? Because even though I've never seen the money, never tasted the money, never touched the money, never had an opportunity to smell the money, I go spend it. Why? Because there's been a guarantee made to me that at some point, this location of my employment is going to have my paycheck waiting somewhere for me because they made a commitment to transfer those funds. And I go spend it. Now, my wife, on the other hand, she doesn't spend a dime unless she sees the money. She wants to make sure it's there. I don't understand it, but that's the way we work. What does that guarantee of God's promises look like in your life? How are you anchoring to those promises that you know, that you know, that you know? In number four this morning, I want to point out that our anchor holds within the veil. See, pain, death, guilt, hurt, and sorrow were all things that Jesus, when he died, left behind. But in the midst of all of those circumstances, he left hope. And he left a hope understanding that this hope is fixed because Jesus is in the midst of where that anchor resides. And we see in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he provided the purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And we have an opportunity to rest our hope upon the very presence of Jesus Christ, the King, our Lord, our Savior. And we also have this fulfillment of his promise in the exaltation of Christ, who in verse chapter 20 tells us something really important that he's doing on our behalf. That in chapter, or verse 20 here of chapter 6, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, became a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Entered as a forerunner. This week I had to go and say, you know what? I'll be honest, I don't actually know 100% accuracy that I know what a forerunner means. So before I got up this morning, I realized you might want to know as well what the dictionary says a forerunner is. The dictionary defines a forerunner as a person or thing that precedes the coming or development of someone or something else. Let me say that again. A person or thing that precedes the coming or development of someone or something else. 
My Christ, my Lord, my Savior has entered into the inner sanctuary as a forerunner. That he has gone before me on the purpose of my development. On the purpose of my molding. On the purpose of me understanding what it looks like to worship. For me to understand that what we did here this morning at the beginning of this service was exalting the very King of kings and Lord of lords. That we would know with a sure foundation, with a strong encouragement that where he resides, where he sits at the right hand of the Father is a faithful place, is a glorious place, and an anchor that rests in that place is an anchor that can take strong encouragement and hold to the promises of His Word. That's my God. That's my God. Jesus is in the midst of my anchor. See, what happened was when Jesus came to that place called Golgotha and they took those nails and they began to drive them into his hands. And they began to drive that nail between his feet. The disciples and his mother, as they watched this reality, all they could see was a sense of hopelessness and a sense of loss. But what they were failing to recognize, that Jesus promised in three days there will be a different verdict that will change the verdict of now. And all they could see was the pain. And when those thorns were being shoved into his brow, they couldn't hold to a promise of the future because they were wrapped up in the bondage of the presence. And they couldn't remember the words of Jesus saying, in a few days, I'll rise again. And when Jesus rose again, he came and even spoke further promises into the audience and the crowds of people that saw the resurrected Christ saying, when I ascend into heaven, I will send you a helper. And that helper you will know is the Holy Spirit and he will take up residency that I have the opportunity to become the Spirit's address. That he resides in me and there is strong encouragement and strong hope knowing that my God loved me so much that he pursued me with such abandon that he would let the Spirit reside in me. Now here's the thing. i got to get over the verdict of my past to believe there's a better verdict for my future. And maybe some of you in the room this morning really struggle with the verdict of your past. Maybe some of you really struggle with understanding how to get to this place of knowing real hope. Paul does us another huge favor in the book of Romans, and he fleshes out very practically for us what it looks like to get to this place of knowing genuine hope. He says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 5, saying, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in the tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And it's a hope that does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. A hope that doesn't disappoint. But what does this mean for us? It means we have to stay in it long enough for God to produce the hope through the trials, through the difficulties, through the hardships. We have to stay in the midst of some of those difficult moments for God to prove himself faithful. If there's any guys in the room that are similar to me, why that's so difficult is because I'm wired to be a fixer. 
That when there's a problem at home or there's a problem with relationships or there's a problem with circumstances that come before me, my first inclination is not to go before God, it's to simply try and fix it. Now, what does this demand of me right now? How do I speak into this moment? Instead of recognizing that God's producing circumstances in my life that cause me to step back and rely on his promises and rely on the fact he's faithful. I try to get out of that hurt. I try to get out of that sorrow. I try to get out of that guilt and get out of that shame as quick as I possibly can. And God's saying, hey, Corey, psst. if you don't stay in it long enough, I may take you through it again for you to find out what real hope looks like. Corey, I want you to come to a place where you can depend on me. Corey, I want you to come to a place where you can rely on me. Corey, I want you to stop coming to that place where you look at me and say, hey God, would you mind hopping off your throne for just a moment so I can get up there, make this choice, and you can get right back up there. He's saying, Corey, trust me. My promises are true. My promises are faithful. As it says so clearly in Hebrews 6.19, it enters the inner sanctuary behind the veil where Jesus went before on my behalf. Corey, there is a future verdict that will change your past. Corey, I am returning for my bride. Corey, there is a day that Timothy speaks of, the book of Timothy speaks of so clearly, there is a day that when he returns and that eastern sky parts and that trumpet blows, that we will meet up with him in the sky in the twinkling of an eye and the dead in Christ shall rise. Why? Because he has promised us an eternal relationship in his glory. And there's a promise that we can take strong encouragement in because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Growing up in church, my father was a pastor, and uh, we grew up in kind of the mentality that whenever the doors were open, we were there. I used to tell people I had a severe drug problem. Every time the doors were open, I was drugged to church. And Sunday morning would roll around. I could be throwing up in my bedroom, and my mama would hand me a bucket and say, get in the car, son. We're going to church. Uh, But that season of my life, so frequently through many of my younger years, I came to the point of almost resenting church because it just became this place where I went because of obligation and I went because family was there and I went because that's where dad was at. And and all of these realities for church for me became almost um, deadly. I saw church as as a kind of unhappy place for me. Because I was wrapped up in so much stuff that I honestly believed in my life, if people knew what was going on with me, the preacher's kid, there's no way they could love me. I mean, if people really knew what was going on in Corey Bushonic's life, the pastor's kid, and they, I, mean, I told myself they would never listen to my dad again. That would destroy my father's ministry. It would, it would hurt everything if people really knew about Corey. And so I saw church as almost a very detrimental place to me. But looking back over that season of life for me, I remember a hymn that continues to ring strong for me today. A hymn that maybe many of you in this place would know called The Solid Rock. And it went like this. When hope is built on nothing less, I rest on His unchanging grace. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. But it was the second verse that has stayed with me. And it goes like this. 
When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. And every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. My question for you today is, what are you anchored to? What are the promises of God's word that have taken root in your heart and your soul? Maybe some of you today have closed your eyes and you've woken up and you realize spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, you have, you have sailed and moved so far from what God's intended design for your life was. And today you catch yourself asking yourself, how did I get here? How did the wind of life blow me so far off of what God had for me? How do I get here? That I want to tell you with certainty that God has a purpose and God has a future for you. 